I'm going to go ahead and read. I'll probably do this in two sections at a time. Um, we're going to start in Esther 8. So hear God's word from Esther chapter 8. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king then took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping, and she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he devised uh, against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written, overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all of the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther. And they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name uh, on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with the ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps and the governors and the nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, to kill and to annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do all this um, in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adir. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness amongst the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many of the people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. This is the word of the Lord. So when I was a kid, um, they had this this show on TV um, after school and creatively called the after-school special. Um, Now, during the after-school special, they would then air these, like, mini intermissions, and one of them was done by this group called Schoolhouse Rock, 
Um, and one of those things ingrained in my mind was the Schoolhouse Rock production of how a bill becomes a law. There's this kid, he's looking up at the Capitol steps. He sees something sitting there on the steps of the Capitol and he wonders what it is. And then Bill responds in song. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm on the, only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the capital city. It's a long, long wait while I sit in committee. But I know I'll be a law someday. At least I hope and pray that I will. But today I'm just still just a bill. You know that song? Now you do. And so the rest of the three-minute clip walks through the boy and the bill going through the process of a bill becoming the becoming a law. And so, you know, step one is the creation of the book bill. Now, in the after-school spe- uh, special video, there it's like very idealistic. Like there's local citizens who reach out to their congressmen or women and request for the law to be made. And then the members of the House like listen to them and draft and sponsor and introduce a bill for the consideration of Congress. And then step two, it goes to committee um, and it sits and it waits and it waits. And if in committee it goes forward, then it goes to the floor. And on the floor, step three, there's debate and debate and debate. And then that leads finally to a, a, a vote being called. Um, And then step five, the bill is sent back to committee for perfection, and then it's sent to the president, and the president can either do what? Veto it or ratify it into law. Um, And the video ends with it saying, it's not easy for a bill to become a law, is it? Now, what's especially great is that Saturday Night Live did a riff on this after-school special (laughs) about eight years ago. Kenan Thompson plays Bill, and they walk through the story and the song, and then President Obama comes out to the boy and Bill and basically pushes Bill down the Capitol uh, steps. <laughs> and the boy asks the president, like, what's, what's the deal? Why did you push Bill down the steps? And Obama says, there's now actually an easier way for a bill to become a law. And the boy asks, what's that? And out walks uh, Bobby uh, Moynihan, And he has executive order written across his chest. And he sings, I am an executive order, and I pretty much just happen. And then the music stops. And Obama's like, yes. And the boy asks, wait, doesn't it have to go before Congress? And executive order says, oh, that's adorable, kid. You still think that's how the government works? It's great. So as we we come in here to Esther 8 to 10, um, and we're just going to do 8 through half of 9, it actually picks up on something littered um, throughout the book, but most clearly in these last three chapters, and that thing is the decree. The decree. Now there's this idea that I want you to think about today, is that these decrees of Xerxes that come at the end of this book... They can't cancel out death. They, they just seem to, as every decree Xerxes makes, every law that he enacts, that it seems like it's saving people, it's actually just leading to more and more death. Now, I want you to think about um, if, if you were like in charge, if you were that person that 
like in the after school special that appealed to your congressman for you know changing a making a bill and, and become a law like what what would you do like what would you want to see changed what what law do you think will actually help you help the world make things a better place now now how you answer that question says a lot about kind of where you sit in the world. And, and the question I have about that is like, how is that going to be accomplished? How is your bill going to become a law? And how is that law then going to be enacted to help people, to save people? And, and what if there is intense, fierce opposition to your law? What then? If your law is going to like save people, save you, and then there's opposition to that law, what do you do in the face of the, the opposition? Do, do you make more laws? Do you declare more decrees? What do you do? Now, the, the king's decrees, there are four of them, but today we're only going to talk about two. The, the decree for a decree and its execution, and then a ruthless decree, and its execution. The first thing Xerxes must decide uh, after Haman's death is, is what to do with his estate. So he decides he's going to give it to Esther, possibly because it seems just to give the victim what formerly belonged to the victimizer, kind of a type of reparation. Or, and next he must decide what to do with Haman's position. And he gives this to Mordecai, handing him the signet ring that used to belong to Haman. To Haman. So Haman receives Mordecai's lot, and, and Mordecai receives Haman's lot. And then Esther, once again, falls at the king's feet to plead with him. And if you're reading this like for the first time, or you're, you don't really remember the story, you're kind of like, well, wasn't, wasn't, hasn't resolution already happened? Why, why does she have to continue to plead? Well, well Haman's plan has been decreed. The, the how does it be revoked? Because there's a law in Persia that no Persian law made by the king can ever be revoked. So what do you do with that law? Well, you have to make another one. See, the king's hands are tied. So the king gives Esther and Mordecai the liberty, uh, the power to create a decree for the decree, a, a new law for the old law. It's interesting, right? Like the king says, as, as long as it doesn't overturn, revoke, contradict anything previously written, write what you want. Write what you want for Jewish advantage, says the king, as long as you realize that Haman's decree still stands. R write what you like, says the king, it, it will bear my seal, but remember that every document bears it, including Haman's letter. Write what you like, says the king, for I give up the conundrum of how to revoke an irrevocable decree. As you, Esther, have asked is beyond me, but, but feel free to write what you like if you can think of any way to reverse the irreversible. Can you or I reverse the irreversible? It's weird how the most powerful humans in the world 
are, are still in some sense bound by their own words. The king here is bound by his words, right? Like his decrees are set. They cannot be revoked. These are executive orders. That executive order has stepped onto the scene and pushed the bill down the stairs. There's no debate, just the order. The decree of Xerxes, all the power, all the wealth of the world, what? He cannot cancel death. And there's something here for us to consider. The the hidden God of Esther, remember, this is what the author is pushing us to. Right, Right, we've said many times through this book that we are intended to compare Xerxes with who? With God, with Yahweh. They are the comparative features here. Just like we compare Esther to Vashti and Mordecai to Haman, we are being pushed to compare Xerxes with God, the hidden God of Israel. We are told in the Westminster Shorter, what are the decrees of God? The, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, whereby, according to the counsel of his own will, for his own glory, God has ordained whatever comes to pass. The decree of God is God's resolve, his purpose, grounded in his free wisdom by which God guides his creation. God's decrees are eternal, they're wise, they're they're absolute, they're unchangeable. And God binds himself to his decrees. Just as Xerxes, the king of Persia, could not simply rescind the first decree of death, God, the king of the universe, can't simply rescind the decree of death pronounced in the Garden of Eden against humanity. Instead, he issues a counter-decree of life, the, the gospel, Because God did not simply rescind the curse of death on humanity, he counter-degreed redemption. Which results in what? The incarnation of his son. His son's life and death on a cross. So as you sit here this morning, like, what do you do if you don't like one of God's decrees? Right, because that's what's being begged of us in comparing Xerxes with God here. Like Xerxes' decrees seem so arbitrary. Do you ever think that about God's decrees? Like, what do you think about election? That God is an electing God. Because, hear me, like that story is very much at the center of Esther. Because God has what? Elected Israel. He's set his affection on them, his love on them, to be his special people in the world. And what are they to do? As the special people, they are to be the the blessing to the nations. So that as people see them and see their worship of this God, they would be like attracted like, like bugs to light. But Israel's failed. And so what does God do? He elects his son. His son is sent to be the true Israel, the Israel of God, sent to live the life that Israel couldn't live, die the death that Israel couldn't die, be resurrected. And that same election elects us. God sets his affection on us in his decrees 
before the foundation of the world, before you or I did anything, believed anything, God, with his decree, elects. Well, what about those who aren't elect? Have you ever found yourself asking that question? What if I'm not elect? What do I do then? Calvin used to say, like, whenever you start to get lost in God's decrees, like trying to wonder about that, he goes, don't try to find any answers in the decree. Look to Jesus. If you're looking to Jesus, that's the assurance of your election. Now, how all that works for us, we could have, you know, lots of sermons. And there's been many books written about that. But what do you do if you don't like those decrees? I, re- I remember my parents used to make decrees all the time. Ex fiat, like it is said and it is. We were talking about last night about bedtime. Like uh, my bedtime was 8.30, bro. Like until I was like deep in the middle school. And I hated it, man. And, and Danette grew up without a bedtime. Like, and guess who likes to sleep and who doesn't? Like, my parents, you, like, you ruined me about sleep forever with your divine decrees. So what decrees do you stumble over? What, what things make you question whether God is really at work in the world? Now, there is a second decree, a decree that cannot cancel death, right? The terms are exactly the same as Haman's, just in converse, right? The terms are the, if you read Haman's decree and you read uh, Esther's decree through Xerxes here, it's the same, just in converse. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble, protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the province of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adair. Exactly the same. Now notice, the Jews were once the victims of Haman's law are now given and powered by this new law. That that power is the power to assemble, to protect themselves, to fight back against those who would seek to do them harm, and also to plunder. And that's an important note here. And a day, the day where the lot landed, the day for defense. And so that law goes out into all the land, And it is here again we see reversal. The Jews are now on the rise as an ethnic people within Persia. Their enemies are going down. And when Mordecai leaves to go in the city, he's he's royal. His, His robes, his crown from sackcloth to glory. And there's this joy, we are told, as all the Jews in the empire celebrate, feast. They can now live open from concealment to revelation, right? There's, there's something beautiful and wonderful about this law. But we also catch a glimpse of what power does. He who wields the power of the decree rules. It elicits both joy in the Jew, and we're told fear in the citizens. And those, that fear inspires some to be converted. How many of you were converted out of fear? 
There's power for those who write histories that determine fates. It's like when you've been sucking up to one boss, and suddenly you kind of see him like on the outs, and then it's time to start sucking up to the new one. That's kind of what's happening here with the, the people of Susa. And this leads to the execution of the Gree. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adir, the edict, this is chapter 9, by the way, if you want to pop it on the screen, John. The edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in all their cities and all their provinces of King Xerxes to attack those who determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because, uh, 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 because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the king's administrators, helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout all the provinces, and he became even more powerful And the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, I'm going to let all those names go by. They killed all of them by name. And the ten sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, five clauses start this chapter stacked right on top of each other, giving the sense of how many things have been unstacked on top of the Jews because of Haman's decree. And we read the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The reversal now has spread to the entire empire. And on this day, the Jews fight those who attack them. Now, this is where things get tricky for us. So I want you to stop and consider some things because I'm not going to necessarily give you all the answers here. Like, remember, just biblical kind of theological, sin causes division, right? And that division, if unchecked, unrestored, unrepented of, when there's no repair made, leads to what? Hatred. And hatred, if unchecked, leads to violence, I don't know if you saw this stat recently, but there was a a poll about what Americans thought about political violence. And there's been a significant increase in in Americans' support, with over half of Americans supporting occasional violence against their political opponents under certain circumstances. Now, you're living in this moment. You, You know what it feels like. I think what you also know is this desire that you intrinsically have to want blood, to want someone to pay. I remember when Jed was, oh man, I don't know, he was eight, nine, maybe. We went to this pizza place and he's playing games with this kid and this kid's, it's a little shooter game and he takes that gun and he whacks Jed on the head and we both see it. And I'm like, and I step up to that, and mom comes in and says, well, boys are just being boys. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And that's when dad stepped in. And I thought, it's about to go down. <laughs> what, what is it in us 
that causes us to just jump. We all want justice. We all want to defend ourselves. We all want retribution and recompense when someone hurts one of our people. Now, what's happening in in Israel today with the violence of Hamas against Israel and then Israel's retaliation, knowingly targeting places of citizens with uh, Gazan civilians, but the terrible things that Hamas does, where did that all begin? With sin, division, hatred, violence. What do you do when a loved one has been the victim of a horrible evil? Your innate sense of justice demands the wrong not simply be overlooked, but the perpetrator face appropriate consequences. Now, when that happens and you don't have power, what do you do? What do you do when justice doesn't come? That is how genocide happens, by the way. The person in power overturns a generation, and then the next generation rises up and overturns those who caused the genocide to begin with. Reread, they did what pleased, what they pleased to those who hated them. Now, there's a lot of mix here, right? There is definitely self-defense which seems it would be justified, but remember, we're not getting God's voice in the book of Esther. Like, there's no specific thing saying, God told them to do this. Like, we are left to, like, wrestle with what the text is saying. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. Xerxes' degree cannot cancel death. Reversals of power can make the oppressed oppressors. And what you get here in the language of the text is the same language used of holy war. Whenever the the Jews occupied the promised land, this is the same language. When they said they could take plunder and they did not take plunder, that's exactly the command of God when Israel entered the promised land. Do not take plunder. Now, Deuteronomy 9, 4 to 6 says the following. It is not because of your righteousness, he's talking to Israel, or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that this is not because of your righteousness, Israel, that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, what do we do with that? Again, we come back to the decree of election. He chose Israel to be his agents in the world at this particular time. Now remember, it's different now. Hear me clearly. Because of Christ, Christ is the agent. No longer the nation state of Israel. So, they were not perfect. They were not righteous. They were stiff-necked. And yet... God used them for what purpose? To enact his justice 
for the destruction that these nations were doing in the world. For the sacrificing of babies to the God of Molech. Holy war is about God warring against sin and evil on the earth. Meredith Klein has this term called intrusion ethics to understand this. Whenever there's this aspect of God judging a people, he's pulling in time's judgment into the present day. Intrusion. He's intruding into history with his ethical demands of his law on a particular people. And that's what's happening in holy war. Again, not today, then. Warring. Why? Why is he warring against evil? Because of his decree. His faithfulness to his promises. To say that God is too loving to punish the wicked implicitly plays God's love for the victim against God's love for the perpetrator. The full extent of God's love for all of us can be appreciated only by recognizing the full extent of his wrath poured out on Jesus for the sins of the world. It is the cross, on the cross, that God's love and justice meet and are reconciled. Now this leads to the second point. Yeah, I know. Just strap on the seatbelts. Remember, this sermon was to be the rest of the the book, so we just be glad you don't have the rest of it today. Verse uh, 11, the number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. And the king said to Queen, Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What they have done in the rest of the king's provinces. Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict also. And let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adair, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Again, hear that. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies, and they killed 75,000 of them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now the question is, Does Esther go too far with the second day of killing, with the retribution of Haman's sons? Is this why her name gets related to Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess of love and war? And the question for you and I is, can we rightly handle power without yielding to the darker side of that power? Is Are our actions any different than those outside of God's kingdom? Is all our efforts at self-defense, justice, retribution, punishment, is it necessarily flawed and often excessive because of our own sin? Now, I, I don't want you to resolve this. Like, I really just want you to sit in it and reflect upon it. Haman has attempted by his decree of death against the Jews to reverse the destiny of destruction which God promised to the Amalekites, bringing it against God's own people, the Jewish race. Mordecai's decree reverses Haman's 
and turns the promise of destruction back onto the enemy of the Jews who were seeking to destroy them. And do you see it? The cycle? And this is what we're still living in today. And so what makes an end of this? What makes an end of ruthless violence or or just misplaced violence, just excessive self-defense? It's God's decree. It's God's strategy against sin and evil, which was awaiting the perfect warrior who could execute his divine justice with clean hands and a pure heart. His name is Jesus. The death of Christ, the Messiah of Israel, provides the only basis for the cessation of holy war. The infilling of the Holy Spirit provides the only power by which one may love their enemies. All the vengeance of God's people, all that we would like to wreak on those who practice evil, has now been satisfied in the suffering of Jesus in his death. He's taken the wages of sin. He's suffered the vengeance of evil. The vengeance due to us for our sins against others and due to them for their sins against us. It's the only basis for recognizing that the penalty has been paid by Jesus, that we we can forgive others as we have been forgiven. True holy war in human history has ceased because Jesus has fought the final episode on the cross. From the beginning of time, God's war has been against sin and evil and the devil and death. And it's easy to think wrongly of sin and evil as being abstractions apart from people. We seem to want God to destroy sin and evil, but leave people alone. However, sin and evil do not exist apart from human beings who sin and who do evil, whether angelic or human. And so salvation, at least in some, the deepest significance is that people are actually saved from something both terrible and real, and that something is the wrath of God directed towards sin and evil, their sin and their evil. So God's irrevocable decree of death and destruction has been countered by his decree that all who believe in his son should not perish under his wrath, but be delivered into eternal life. The violence of God against sin and evil can therefore be right in the king of Israel. He is the lion and the lamb who waged the final war against sin for you and for me. And so that's how we're to kind of live in this moment, y'all. And the text of Esther is like pushing on us. What's happening in Israel right now is pushing on us. Because you're being asked to take sides. Victims become victimizers. Who then become victims again. Who become victimizers. Who become victims again. Who become victimizers. Who oppress. Divide hate, and destroy. And what's the answer? Is Jesus Christ, his death, all of that levied against him. So what does that make us into being? Nonviolent, non-hating, non-dividing. Yes, self-defense is sometimes required of us. 
But it is needed, needs to be measured with wisdom, with justice. God's decree has been set upon you. I have lots more. I'm going to stop, though. So that you might love. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. God, we, we, we fully acknowledge that uh, there's no easy answers. And certainly, the answer is not to like just water down your hatred of evil and sin and your war against it. Nor should we water down just how Christ stands in the gap for us and, and deals with this for us. You are the God who is worthy to wield the sword. But you are also the God. So help us as we live in this moment, in this time. Help us as we wrestle with being victims and being perpetrators and help us to see how Jesus rescues victims and perps and to trust you and to trust your decree. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.